The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to speak to you tonight on the life of the church. And when we use the word church, we're speaking of the local church. Uh, there's more than one local church represented here tonight. Uh, collectively, we consider ourselves to be churches of like precious faith. So in that sense, we're perhaps one church. But as far as the government and the discipline of the church is concerned, we are separate bodies of believers, and each local body is answerable to the Lord. So before we talk about the life of the church, I want us to get an understanding of what the term church means. Now, the most basic meaning is a called-out assembly. If you get a little more specific, you can think of a church as a congregation of Christians. A Christian is a follower of Christ. The definition I like the best because it makes a very important point is that the church is a body of baptized believers. That's why baptism is so very important because that brings you into the church. You are now part not of an organization but a spiritual organism. You are part of a real body. You may not see it like you do your physical body, but to be a member of the church is to be a part of a real spiritual body where you're connected to the other parts of the body. You're affected by the other parts of the body. You have an effect upon them. And we need to understand that that's why baptism is so serious. It's a profession of your faith in Christ. Baptism is an acknowledgement that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's an acknowledgement that you believe he was raised again for your justification. And you now want to publicly profess that and publicly demonstrate it in water baptism as you now join with other people who have that same desire. So that's a definition of what the church is. And again, I want to emphasize it's not an organization. It's a spiritual living body. Now, another thing we need to consider about the church before we proceed to talk about the life of the church is that according to 1 Timothy 3.15, it's referred to as the church of God, the house of the living God, and listen to this, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, from a human standpoint, 
that is according to the wisdom of man. Someone may look at us gathered here tonight and say, how can you claim that this little group of people assembling in such a simple way can be the pillar and ground of the truth. The reason I can say that is because that's what the Lord said. And it doesn't take but a little research to realize that the religious organizations of men which are designed to perpetuate or promote truth are often the very organizations that become corrupt. I have personally talked to men who have went to religious schools that deny the resurrection, deny the virgin birth, and deny other basic doctrines. And there's a principle throughout the Bible of God promoting those things that, that are not according to the wisdom of this world. God confounds the wise. The things that men would do to try to maintain true religion are generally not in harmony with the things God promised to do and is doing to perpetuate truth. So the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 16, in verses 15 through 18, that uh, when he was speaking to Peter, and Peter said regarding Jesus, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. Notice what he says next. He says, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the rock under consideration there is referring to the revelation of who Jesus is. Because he told Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but he said, my Father which is in heaven. So the church is a body of people that have received spiritual revelation, that is spiritual understanding that not everyone has. As a matter of fact, the revelation under consideration there in Matthew 16 is a revelation that only a small portion of God's children understand. Because to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is to say that He is the Anointed One. The word Jesus means Savior, so He's the Anointed Savior. And the true church believes he saved. That's the revelation. That's the revelation you and I have. We understand uh, that Jesus saved us and that understanding, that revelation, that principle is the rock upon which the church is built. Zion Church, Five Mile Church, any other church that may be represented here is built upon the basic foundation that Jesus is our Savior and each part of that body embraces that understanding. That is our foundation of truth.
So let's talk now a little bit about the life of the church. Well, first of all, we know that each member of the church is in possession of spiritual life. And I'm sure most all of you here have heard a number of sermons on the new birth and how that that's a work of God, in particular a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves and quickens whom He will. And those whom He wills to quicken are those that were chosen in Christ before the world began and redeemed by Christ at the cross. They are then, according to God's sovereign will and time, born of the Spirit. But I want you to think about it along these lines. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're just going to take portions of some of the verses we're looking at to emphasize a point and also to make the best use of our time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, notice how we are described. He says, Ye are the temple of the living God. A temple is a dwelling place. You as an individual person, as a result of the new birth, you are the temple, you are the dwelling place of the living God, as God has said. That is, here's why that's the case. God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that's a, that's a statement or a way of expressing a truth that's special to us as primitive Baptists. Notice how he says that. He says, uh, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says, uh, I will walk in them, I will dwell in them. Those are all statements of certain truth, aren't they? I will, I will, I will, they will. He is our God and we are His people. In Romans chapter 8, you'll find some very uh, similar language. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's plain, isn't it? We also read that he that hath the Spirit hath life, and he that hath not the Spirit of God hath not life. Or rather it says this, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. So you say, Brother Buddy, what's that got to do with the church? Well, I'm describing to you, first of all, the parts that make up the church. Now, notice in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we'll begin to get a picture of the life of the church. 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, Ye also as lively stones. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the individual members of the church. 
He's talking about God's people as individual people. The ones in whom His Spirit dwells. The ones in whom that principle applies where He says, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be My people. He's talking to those individuals. And He says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Now a house is not a lot of independent parts with no order. You know, when, we, when, uh, when this building was constructed, we didn't just ask some subcontractors to come dump a load of bricks out and uh, throw a few doors in and just throw everything we need out here. No, it had to be put together. And each part serves a purpose. That's the church. Each member, it doesn't matter what your age is. It's irrelevant. Each part is a living member. Here he calls us as lively stones built up a spiritual house, unholy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We're offering up spiritual sacrifices. Now we're prone to think well, we're no longer under the law service. We don't offer animal sacrifices. That's true, but we're still offering sacrifices. He says that, Paul says that uh, we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice. What does that mean? That means my life and my, in, my interest in my life have been sacrificed towards God's interest. I'm sacrificing what I want to do, what I prefer, what's important to me. I'm sacrificing that to serve God. And that's what he's talking about here. He says we're a spiritual house and we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now in particular here, he's referring to, to public worship perhaps. But in general, that applies to our whole life being a sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. That word prove there can mean scrutinize. That you may scrutinize what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When you young people go to college, that's a very important time to take this book and in response to what you hear from your teachers, in response from what you hear from other students, you need to scrutinize it with this book. Test it with this book that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Because the world, whether it's college or elsewise, is not interested in that. But I trust you're interested in the will of God. And then notice in Ephesians chapter 4. Since we as individuals are the temple of God. Since He dwells in us, walks in us. He is our God and we are His people. 
were not only looked upon as lively stones, but notice in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, making reference to Christ, it says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. You see how important it is to understand that when you uh, make a profession of faith and when you're baptized, you have become a part of something that is spiritually alive and your behavior and Uh, the way you live and the attitudes you have will have influence either positively or negatively on other people because he says here, not only are we lively stones, but he says we're compacted together. That's that's describing uh, physically, in a physical sense, we would think of a a brick wall, like the the exterior walls of this building. There's There's all these small bricks compacted together that means literally cemented or glued together and every part is supplying something you know you could cut out a br- one brick in a wall you'd say it didn't make any difference keep cutting eventually it'll make a difference on it it'll become weaker and weaker and weaker until it finally collapses See, you may see yourself as insignificant, but the church is compact together by that which every joint supplies. If you say, well, I'm so disabled, I can't hardly get around, they won't miss me, I'm just in the way. That's what Satan wants you to think. You know, if you read the scriptures, some of the most, uh, some of the most, uh, some of the greatest benefits in the church are a result of the older women teaching the younger women, and the older men teaching the younger men. Why read a book when you've got a a, a treasure chest of life experience to talk to? See, we're compact together by that which every joint supplies. But what I want to finally focus on, I hope you see that the church is a collective group of individual born-again children of God, and they're they're separate from other born-again children of God in that they've subjected themselves to gospel baptism and they've submitted themselves to one another. Like one preacher said, when you join the church, you give up your independence. But what I want us to think about now is not so much that vital life, but how we are, may I say, enlivened how we're stirred up by the Holy Spirit, how we're we're energized by the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, let's look at Acts chapter 1. Let's look at an Old Testament passage first. I won't turn to it. I'll just quote it. 
You can look at it later. Psalm 127 is a very short psalm. And the first part of verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now that's a good starting point for the principle I'm going to try to talk about for the balance of our time. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now first of all, there's some things that verse does not say. That verse does not say, the Lord will build the house, so don't worry about it. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the Lord expects you to build the house. But it says the assumption is made that we are attempting to build. See, that's the assumption. And that's what we believe as primitive Baptists. You know, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, which contains uh, the longest discussion in the New Testament on the nature of the new birth... And it concludes in verse 10 by saying uh, we're created, talking about us being spiritually born again, we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, the assumption is made oftentimes in the Scriptures that we already understand that we're children of God, and we ought to obey our Heavenly Father. But we need to be reminded, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. That's saying God must bless our efforts. And the way He blesses our efforts is by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a phrase that's often misunderstood in the religious world, isn't it? The anointing of the Holy Spirit does not mean that you go out of your mind. Like I heard a preacher say one time, he said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't go crazy. You have good sense for the first time in your life. That's a Bible meaning of being filled with the Spirit. Now, you can be filled with a Spirit. Uh, you know, the liquor store, they have spirits there, but it always has an S on the end, doesn't it? You can be filled with a Spirit or spirits but we're talking about the anointing of the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. But notice in Acts chapter 1, in keeping in mind that this is the beginning of inspired church history. Now I recognize the Gospels are also church history, but here here we're talking about after Jesus left this world and the church made up now of people apart from the direct teaching of Christ is now beginning to function. Jesus established the church, but we might say this is when the church set sail. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse 4, and being, this is speaking of the apostles, 
and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Here are people that have been baptized with water. Here are the apostles. Here are the followers of the Lord. But the Lord says in order for the church to set sail and grow, you need something more. And notice he says, verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now there's been the debate in the past that's called some unrest as to whether or not the Great Commission was fulfilled by the apostles or or we still under it today? Well, here's my answer to that, which I believe is what the Scriptures teach. There was a sense in which the apostles fulfilled it. But we are still under the command, as Paul told Timothy, who was an elder, not an apostle. He said, do the work of an evangelist. So in what sense am I still under the, the, the Great Commission, if you want to say it that way? I'm under it in principle. I don't have the power they did. I don't have the things that authenticate that I'm an apostle. I don't have that. I'm not under that. But I am under the principle of going and preaching the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. But with regard to this text, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Paul told the church at Colossae, he refers to this and says that we have preached to every creature which is under heaven. So there's a sense in which it was fulfilled, but that's nothing to debate about. The apostles had special power and special authority that Brother Chris and I do not have. But we still are to go through open doors. We don't go necessarily door to door. We believe we must be led of the Spirit. I went and preached in Las Vegas because I was called and asked to come. I've baptized individuals that lived other places who called me and desired to be a part of the Primitive Baptist Church. One even flew to the States and joined the Primitive Baptist Church and is now living in the United States and an active member of a local church in another state. But the point I'm trying to make is that we go through open doors. Paul said on one occasion, a great door and effectual is open unto me and there are many adversaries. There are many that would oppose those things that God are doing. But notice... As we continue with this, thinking about that we receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon us. 
You say, well, Brother Buddy, did that apply just to those apostles when they were anointed with the Holy Spirit and they received that special power? I believe there was a special application of it there. But you know, there's a lot of things in terms of special application that are still true in principle. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is going to really hit home and become really practical and relevant with regard to how we still depend upon the Holy Spirit to enliven us today. Now here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there was a problem in the church. There were one group that wallowed, followed one group that followed one minister, another group that followed yet another one. And notice what happened here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says in verse 4, for, for while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not, not carnal? That would be just like someone saying, I'm a brother Chris, but I'm a brother buddy. Are ye not carnal? I'm glad we don't have that problem here. He says, while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believe? He's going to begin taking down preachers. You start worshiping preachers, and what I mean by that is you start giving allegiance to a man based on the fact of who he is, the Lord's going to start taking down. Notice what he does here. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Brother Chris? Who is Brother Buddy? All they are is ministers by whom you believed. He says, Paul's speaking, he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In other words, what we do accomplishes nothing unless God gives the increase. You see, even when someone is born of the Spirit, they still need spiritual light, even when they hear the gospel preached. You know, wouldn't it be nice if I could say, listen, bring me someone that's born of the Spirit, and I'll convert them to the truth. That ain't true, is it? We know that by experience. We all know people that are born of the Spirit, but they don't have a comprehension of, of gospel truth. Well, you remember when those women were having a prayer meeting and Lydia that was there, and it said, you know, they were already praying now. They were already uh, born-again children of God, having a prayer meeting, and Paul came there, and what did it say about her? It said, the Lord opened her heart. Wait a minute now, she's already born again. She was already praying. But it still says the Lord opened her heart and she attended to those things which are spoken of Paul. In other words, she said, I see it. I understand this. See, God set it up in a way that we can't glory in it. There's not a preacher that will ever figure out a formula where he can say, listen, 
Bring to me one of God's born-again elect, and I'll show them the truth, and they'll be a member of the church. That has never been, nor will it ever be accomplished. The gospel is not mystical, but there's a mystical element that I can't control, I can't figure out, and that makes me always dependent upon the Lord. Because one may sow, one may water, but God gives the increase. What a, what a pitiful sight it would be for a farmer to sow and water and there be no increase. He can't force the increase. But then listen to this. Here's how important me and Brother Chris are. Verse 7. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You know what that says? Brother Buddy is nothing. Brother Chris is nothing. That's what it says. Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Does that mean that what I'm doing is worthless? No, it's simply teaching that if God doesn't bless it, it will, it will be worthless. It will not accomplish anything. He says, uh, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, that is, ye are God's garden. Ye are God's building. You see, it doesn't matter how much we read the Bible. We must have the anointing of the Spirit of God. You know, I can, I can even uh, relate to that this weekend. You know, this morning I was flipping through my Bible. I'm, Lord, I have no idea what I'm going to preach on. You know, there's just nothing there. But I've been preaching long enough that that doesn't bother me anymore. Because generally, the Lord impresses something on my mind. And I know Brother Chris has the same experience. But then lastly, I want to look at a couple of scriptures in Revelation. And remember, we're talking about how the Spirit enlivens or anoints the church. There is a realm of invisible spiritual activity in the church. Did you know that? There is a realm of invisible to the natural eye. There's a realm of invisible spiritual activity in the church. And notice how that's described here in Revelation uh, chapter 1. And let's just read verses 10 through 16. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists those seven churches. And he said in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven 
golden candlesticks. Remember that. He saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Now I want you to think about that. Here's seven golden candlesticks, and he says, one like unto the Son of Man was in the midst of them. Seven golden candlesticks, one like the, in the midst of them like the Son of Man. Verse 16, and he, that is the Son of Man, had in his right hand seven stars. Now I know we're just taking out pieces of this, but I trust I'm not violating the context. You see if I'm preaching it right when you get home. I just want you to see these three things. Seven candlesticks, the Son of Man walking in the midst of them, and the Son of Man has seven stars in His hand. We don't have to guess about what this is. Verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now when he says that these seven stars are the angels, the word angel means messenger, and I believe that can certainly apply in principle to the minister of the gospel, the pastor in particular, God's messenger to the church, and he says the seven golden candlesticks are the churches, and the Lord's walking in the midst of them. Now think about this. If the Lord's walking in the midst of the churches, isn't there a relationship between the churches? It's not healthy for a church to isolate themselves. But at the same time, those candlesticks don't control each other. See, it's easy to go one extreme to the other. It's easy to say, well, we're just frustrated. We have this problem over here. We're just going to isolate ourselves. That's not the way the Lord set it up. But on the other hand, the Lord didn't appoint the candlesticks to control other candlesticks. You know who controls the candlesticks? The Lord does. And notice how he describes this in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. He talks about, he says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And then he talks about the situation at this particular church. But what I want you to see is verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come. Now this is the Lord speaking. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Who controls the candlestick? The Lord. You say, Brother Buddy, wait a minute. Now the candlestick's the church. That doesn't really make sense. 
Well, the idea here is the Lord's in control of the light. You take away light, you're in trouble. You can even be in your house that you're familiar with, and if the power goes out, you're, you're liable to stumble over something. Why? Because the light has been removed. Lord takes away our light. One thing that will happen is truth. We'll, we will begin to drift away from truth. You know why? We have no light. No spiritual light. We'll become... Uh, insensitive to how our actions affect others. You know why? We have no light. Basically, we self-destruct because the Lord controls the light. And the light is emblematic of the Spirit of God. So the church is made up of people who are individually indwelt by the Spirit of God. And God says, I'm walking in them, or God says, I'm dwelling in them, I'm walking in them. They, I am their God, and they shall be my people. And when those individual children of God are blessed to understand the truth, they should profess that faith and be baptized, and join themselves to those of like precious faith. And then when we get joined together, realize that we need the Lord's presence. We need His anointing every time we meet. Because we're totally dependent upon the light we receive from Him. And the Lord will walk in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. You know, the words, the number seven is the number of completion. The Lord will walk among His churches. And His churches can have a wonderful relationship one with another. And that relationship will continue as long as we are walking in the light as He is in the light. As a matter of fact, John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That means if we don't walk in the light, we don't have fellowship. Fellowship is not something we declare. We can't declare that we're in and out of fellowship. That's not something we can do. Fellowship means joint participation. Fellowship means companionship. Fellowship means that we have something in common. We can't work that up, can we? It's a result of a common understanding of the truth and a common understanding of loving one another and depending upon the Lord to be our light. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.